Well, I'm eager to open up the Word with you this morning. I'm, I'm eager to look at the second commandment, which sometimes can be a, a place where we trip up in terms of understanding what God is trying to convey. And so as you stand, let me read for you from the Word of God, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. The Word of God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We'll stop there and have a seat. As you have a seat, let me just welcome you here. If you have not been part of our series so far, we've been, we've been working our way up to and then beginning to work our way through the Ten Commandments. And we've been saying from the start, these are not these, are not these old, outdated rules, but, but instead what they are is they're, they're this blessing that God gives that not only point us to our need for a Savior as we realize, I fail to keep the commandments, but they also lead us in love. And that's what we're really doing today is we're saying, what does it look like to be led in love with the first commandment last week and with the second commandment this week? Now, to set things up for you, I want to I tell you about how my wife and I, how, how we learn to kind of get along, actually how we learn to, to show each other love in our first few years of marriage. When we got married, we, uh, if I'm honest, we kind of had no idea what we were doing <laughs> Oh, we really did not. We were trying to figure things out as we went along. And, and in those early years, one of our first lessons were, was that, uh, that oftentimes what I thought was showing her love was doing the opposite. And, and what she thought was showing me love was doing the opposite. Let me show you what I mean. I tend to be pretty project-oriented. I, I tend to be pretty kind of get-it-done oriented. And so in my mind, you know, I'd come home from work and, you know, okay, well, how am I going to show my wife? how much I care about her. And in my mind, what I would say is, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some stuff for her. I'm going to go and I'm going to fix this thing around the house, or I'm going I'm to work on this project, or I'm going I'm to build something here. I am going to do something to serve her. Because if I'm honest, that's how I feel cared for. If someone's doing a project with me, if they're, they're showing me their care by contributing to achieving a goal, right? But, but here's the deal. That's not how she received love at all. See, for her to, to feel loved and cared for, for her what it looked like is instead of me coming home and getting to work, for her what it looked like is me coming home and doing nothing. <laughs> like like s- s- sitting and talking. <laughs> staring deeply into each other's eyes. Like, <laughs> we, we got stuff to do, come on. <laughs> you, you, see, you see the problem here. Because I would come home wanting to show her care, and I would do the opposite. And then she, in the same way, would want to show me care by doing the opposite of what I pictured as care. And why do I share that story with you? Here's why. Because I am convinced you and I, most of us, we do the exact same thing, but not with our spouse or with our kids or with our friends. We do the exact same thing with God. We say, hey, God. I've got a great idea. I've got a great imagination. Let me show you how I want to love you. But here's the problem. God has already shown us how he, how he wants to be loved. 
And that's exactly what we see in the second commandment. And so today, as we continue in this series on the law of God, the big idea, the take-home, the, the phrase that I want you to put it in your pocket and maybe store in your heart and go home with is very simply, it's to love God truly. Now, last week, we talked about how you love God first. You love the one true God. This week, we're going to talk about how to love God truly. That's what the second commandment does for us. The second commandment, it shows us again who God is. And in showing us who God is, as God reveals himself even more in that self-revelation, it shows us how, how to honor him, how to love him, and in loving him, how to worship him. And so let's dig in today. Will you turn to Exodus 20? And as you do, we're going to be in verse 4. And as we begin, we're going to start with God revealing himself as creator. You see, our first stop today as we look at this is you, if you want to love God truly, that means you worship God as creator, not as creature. Look at verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Well, I say here that you are to worship God as creator, not creation. But, but here's the deal. Sometimes people get this a little bit mixed up with the first commandment. The first commandment says, you shall have no other God before me. And then when we get to the commandment two, we read it and says, well, this says almost the same thing. It says, don't make a carved image. Don't make a carved God. But actually what it's saying is, do not, do not make an image that reflects the creator in the form of creation. He, he's not saying, don't go have a pagan carved image of Baal and worship that. He's saying, don't lessen and diminish and shrink God so that you view the creator as equal with creation. I mean, if we back up just a little bit, we see how it flows. You see, the first commandment last week, the first commandment says to worship the true God. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 3. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. We labored over God's revelation last week. We labored over what he's describing about himself, that there is no other real God, and we should have no other affection that competes with an affection for God as our primary worship. We have, should, should have no other allegiance. Last week it said, here, here's, here's what you do. You worship who? You worship God. But here, as we get into the second commandment, it's not who do you worship, it's how. How do you worship? How do you view this one true God? It's, it says the second commandment is to worship God truly. Now, why is this such a big deal? I think part of why this is such a big deal is because, well, let's just be frank. You are a created being. You and I, we are limited. We are finite. And when we talk about God, you know what we're talking about? We're talking about the only one who is not finite, but who is infinite. We're talking about the only one who, who is not limited in his power, but is unlimited in his power. I mean, you and I, we, we exist in a temporal place. Like, I'm, I, I'm standing here on the stage. I'm not standing in the back of the room. I'm in only one location right now. But God, 
God is all present. His presence permeates everywhere. There's nothing that goes without his, his sight or his knowledge. Not only that, I mean, let's twist our mind a little bit more. God is eternal. That means God exists outside of time. Before time began, God existed. When everything comes to an end, God will exist. And he steps outside of it, and he views all of it as a whole. God's mind-blowing. Sometimes this is called God being transcendent, being higher and above and other. And if we're honest, this is a little frightening. He's that big. He's that different. He's that grand. We sang about his majesty. He's that majestic. And because he's so enormous and glorious, because he's so powerful, what do we tend to do? We tend to shrink him into something more manageable. We, we, we tend to carve him into an image that we feel a little bit more comfortable with. I'm doubtful for you it means you carve some stone or some wood and say, this is my God. In ancient days, they would look at the moon and say, maybe that's God, or the stars, or, or the sun, or, or the mountains, and say, maybe these things are God, or maybe God exists in these animals. But, but for us, I think we do the same thing. We, we have this tendency to try to shrink God into something that's more manageable. And, and when we do that, that impacts how we worship. In fact, how we worship this one true God, it's been a debate for, for centuries. It was actually a debate before Jesus' day. It was a debate in Jesus' day. It's been a debate throughout the church. But listen, Jesus actually speaks directly into what it looks like to worship God. John chapter 20. Jesus has just encountered a woman at a well. Now, there's a lot that goes into the story, and I'm only going to touch a slice of it today. But this woman at the well, she was at the well in the middle of the day, and she was a Samaritan, and Jesus was a Jew. There's all sorts of of messages hitting us about this story. First of all, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't have any dealings with each other. Jewish people looked down on Samaritans. And not only that, in Jesus' day, for a woman and a man to be talking like that, that was seen as somewhat scandalous. And so Jesus approaches this woman. He asks her for water. And she says, well, I, you know, she, she, she's willing to give him water. And then he says, I can give you water that's living water. She wants some of that. They have this exchange. And, and as they talk, Jesus reveals to her that he knows more about her than she's comfortable with. He knows her past. He knows some of the sordid details of her sinful life. And so she, you know what she does? It's almost magnificent. She changes the top subject really quick. Instead of talking about her, she says, let's talk about worship. Let's talk about a worship war. Let's talk about disagreements, about how we are to worship. And her argument is, hey, I'm Samaritan. I'm supposed to, we worship over here. You Jewish people, you worship over there. And all of this bubbles out. I want you to look with me in verse 22. Jesus' response to her saying, where are we supposed to worship? Jesus' response to someone saying, how do we worship this one true God? Listen to what Jesus zeroes in on. Not worship on this hill, not worship on that hill, but, but listen to Jesus' response. Verse 22 of John 4. He says, you worship... What you do not know, we, Jewish people, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. When Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, there's more happening in this story than we honestly have the time to cover. But, but I want to introduce you to this, this story just for a brief moment because I, this tells us a little bit about how we worship God truly. If we're going to worship God truly, and not with carved images, not making up worship for ourselves, but if we're going to worship God truly, Jesus says to worship in spirit and truth. But before that, what you see is that this true worship, worship is through the Messiah. Her, her words in verse 29 or 25, they're fascinating. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ Listen to what she says. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You see, the expectation for Jews and Samaritans alike, the expectation is that Jesus would be the one, the Messiah would be the one who explains what real worship looks like. What she doesn't realize is that he already has. He's given this description of of the true worshiper, the one who really worships God, is the one who worships in spirit and in truth. Let's look at what this means for a minute. Not only do we worship through the Messiah, we worship in spirit. Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship must worship him in spirit and truth. You know, a lot of damage has been done to a verse like this when we talk about worshiping him in spirit. Because at times people say, oh, well, to worship, in, worship God in spirit, you know what that means? That means I, in a worship service, I have to get so emotionally worked up that I start doing something kind of like almost borderline crazy. Maybe it means I start waving my arms around or spinning around. Maybe it means I start speaking in some ecstatic language, an other language. That is worshiping in spirit. That is true worship. But that's not likely what this is speaking about here. What this is speaking about likely is coming out of Isaiah 29. Jesus actually quotes Isaiah in a different place, but Isaiah 29 says that the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And he says, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Here's what worshiping in spirit is. Worshiping in the Spirit is when your, your internal desires and affections match your external action. It's really easy to come to a worship service and to sing the songs and maybe raise your hand and maybe even get a little excited physically. And all the while, what you're really doing is you're saying, I hope someone notices how spiritual I am. I hope someone sees how much energy I'm putting into this. I mean, I want people to know. I mean, look look at how how much I'm worshiping God. I hope someone hears how perfect my voice is. I don't have that problem, by the way. (laughs) I, I I, I hope I become the center of attention. You worship me with your lips. 
but your heart is far from me. To worship in spirit means that you come and you, your internals, your desires, your motives, they're about God, not about self. See, see to worship with your desires about self is really to worship making a carved image. You know what that carved image is? It's you. Jesus says to worship in spirit, but he also says to worship in truth. Verse 24 again, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth here, simply put, is, is biblical revelation. Truth is not your truth, and the next person has their truth. No, truth is God's truth. To worship in truth is to worship God based on what he has revealed about himself. A few hundred years ago, instead of saying worship, you know what word we would use? Worthship. Worthship. See, see, to worship in truth is to come to worship saying, I am going to declare not how great I am, not how special I am. I am going to come to worship not so I can get an emotional feeling or emotional high. I am going to come to worship so I can declare how God is worthy. He's worthy of all glory. He's worthy of all praise. He's worthy of all of my time and all of my affection. He is the creator. He is the savior. He is the sustainer. He is full of grace and mercy and justice and truth. That's what true worship is. To worship in spirit, your internals align, and to worship in truth. Your worship is about who God is and about his worth. Today, sometimes we, we describe the difference with these two phrases. One phrase is to have God-centered worship, and the other phrase is to have man-centered worship. God-centered worship it cares very little about the externals because it, it knows that no matter what, we can bring praise to God. Man-centered worship, it cares heavily and obsessively about the externals. Israel, when this command was given, Israel had to turn away from the influences of the Egyptians so that they can worship God as creator, not as a creature. And you and I, I actually believe we must do the exact same thing. We have to identify the ways that the world around us, it lures us to worship God as a creature. It lures us to have a, a man-centered or a man-targeted worship instead of a God-centered worship. Let me ask you, what, what influences how you worship? You think about this? I've, I put a lot of thought into this this past week. I've come up with a few things that I know that can influence me in the way I think about worship. I think the first thing is culture. Culture. Love it or hate it. There is a Christian culture in 21st century America. Christian culture, when you turn on the Christian station... When you turn on the TV that has who knows what kind of teaching coming out of it, that there is a, a Christian culture. And, and this means that what is trendy isn't always worship. When you turn on that radio station to the, the Christian channel and, and you start bobbing your head to it and tapping your foot, and you say, this is pretty catchy, I kind of I like this. And you find yourself singing along to the lyrics. When's the last time you actually stopped and said, what am I actually singing? Are these lyrics, are they, are they about God and his worth? Or are they about me and having warm fuzzies? Are these lyrics, are they truth reflected from the scripture? Or, or are they watered down or half-truths 
that, that are targeted to, to make me feel something. See, what is trendy isn't always worship, but you know what this also means? It means what is historical isn't always worship. And just because it's in a hymnal <laughs> does not mean it's worship. With the same discernment, you have to examine the words of a, a popular psalm, song. The same discernment needs to be used in, in anything we sing to say, is this, is this about God or is it about me? I think culture influences us. I also think there are certain causes that influence our worship. Not only culture, but causes. The predominant cause is what's called the social justice cause. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Social justice, when it, when it begins to be the, the heart of a church, here's what happens. The, the people of the church, they begin to focus the, the majority of their attention on alleviating the ills and the evils of the world. And, and so they, they want to fight all of these bad things they see, and they want to they help people out of their suffering. Are those, are those wrong things to do? Absolutely not. But oftentimes, it, it has an outsized influence on our worship. And so what we end up doing is we have a man-centered perspective. We need to help people not suffer today instead of an internal God-centered. We need to help people see the gospel of Jesus Christ and be rescued. Not, not just from pain and suffering on earth today, but from an eternity separated from God and His love and His care. Culture influences us. Causes influence us. And so do our own choices. Sometimes we, we get all bent out of shape. They, they didn't play a song that I liked this morning. How dare they? Or, or you know what, the genre or the kind of music, it's not my favorite kind of music. And so oftentimes people, they'll sacrifice sound teaching for pleasurable worship. And, and what they do here is they, they, they carve an image out of their self saying, what is the choice of music that pleases me? What are they really doing? They're making worship about self instead of worship about, about God. I've heard it said that your best worship is often done when it's done with a genre and with a kind of music that is the exact opposite of anything you enjoy. Because in that moment, you're not there singing because you can tap your foot to it. You're there singing and lifting your voice because you just want to proclaim how worthy God is. We've got all these influences, but the best influence is Christ. What does Christ say? To worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Do you want to love God truly? It begins by worshiping Him as creator, not as creation, but, but as the second commandment continues, if you want to worship God truly, you continue by worshiping God as jealous, not distant. Now we we use this word jealous, and some of us kind of have the hairs on the back of our neck stick up. Wait, jealous, that's a, that's a negative term. But, but look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What does it look like for God to be a jealous God? What images go into your mind when you think about God being jealous? Do you picture a toddler in the corner with his arms crossed and his, his eyebrows furrowed down because he hasn't gotten his way and he's, he's throwing a temper tantrum or a, a pity party? Is God in his jealousy, is he a petty, pouting God? Is, is that what this means? You see, you and I, we automatically think jealousy as a negative thing, but you realize in this context, jealousy is a wonderful thing. 
See, jealousy in this context is, is, to, is to earnestly desire what is yours. It's different from envy. Envy is to earnestly desire what is not yours. Oh, I sure wish I had that. But jealousy is earnestly desiring what is yours. It's, it's a husband who from across the room sees another man flirting with his wife. And in that moment, what's the right response? Oh, go have fun, babe. The right response is jealousy. It's a father. It's a father who, who earnestly desires to be the biggest man in his children's lives. Who wants his kids to look to him for wisdom and for love and for help, knowing they can come to him in any need. That is, in those situations, the only right response is, is a holy and a godly jealousy. You see, again, this, this culture we live in sometimes views words like jealousy and they say, you shouldn't be jealous. That's a bad thing. And they'll kind of slap your hand and, and, and kind of guilt you for having such an emotion. But God himself earnestly desires what is his. You ever thought about how jealous God is for you? How jealous is God for you? When we say that God is a jealous God and not a distant God, sometimes we don't realize God is jealous at all. We view God as distant, aloof, kind of off doing his own thing, disconnected from your life, doesn't really care. Maybe he checks in every once in a while, but for the most part, he's doing his God stuff and you're doing your life stuff, right? But that's not the picture the scripture paints at all. The scripture teaches that God is so jealous for you, for you to know his love and for you to love him. He is so jealous that he was willing to spend the ultimate price. He, he sent his own son. What, what does 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 say? It says, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your bodies. Here's what that means. It means that God loves you and is so jealous to have you know him that he was willing to send his, his son to, to leave the glories and the perfection of heaven, to leave the perfect harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has existed for all time. He was willing to send his son to walk and breathe dirt and dust on this earth, to be betrayed, to be lied about, to be arrested and beaten, to be drugged outside of the city limits and crucified to a cross until he breathed his last breath, paying the price for your sin, you were bought with a price to be buried so that your sin can be removed, so that you can be adopted and made his child, so that you can be brought into his kingdom and his church, so that you could be redeemed and renewed and justified, so you could have all of the wealth of the promises of the gospel lavished upon you. That is how jealous God is for you. He's not distant. He is jealous. This means that, that God is not passive He's not passive, so, so nor should your worship be. Not only is God not passive, God is not apathetic. He, he's not disinterested, no, nor should your worship be. Let me ask you, when it comes to worship, 
When we, when we give worship to God, are you passive? Do you kind of put your hands in your pockets and just like check your watch? Okay, we, this is that singing portion. Hopefully this ends and then we can get to the real part of the sermon, right? And don't get me wrong. I, I think the word of God is always the centerpiece of a worship service. But when it comes to, to ascribing worth and honor and majesty and glory to God, are you apathetic? Are you more concerned about what others around you might think or are you more concerned about what God is worth? Are you passive? Because God in his jealousy for you certainly is not passive. He certainly is not apathetic. In fact, here's what I think. I think when you know the jealousy of God for you, the jealous God actually produces zealous worshipers. A jealous God produces zealous worshipers. Let me me show you what I mean. I'm jealous for my kids' attention and their love. Uh, as I mentioned, I want to be the biggest man in their life, right? And so I do some things, whether, whether perfect or not, like I'm not a perfect dad, but I've learned to do some things that show my kids that I am jealous for them. So when I come home from work and I get in the door, the very first thing I do is I go find every single one of my kids and I give them a hug and I give them a kiss regardless of what they're doing, regardless of who's over, right? Like if they're playing their video games, sorry, you're going to die in your Fortnite. I'm going to kiss you, right? Like if, they, if they're, they're doing a chore or something, I pick them up and I hold them for me. I find every one of them and I give them a hug and a kiss every time, right? It's almost without fail. But, but you know what else? At bedtime, same thing. They go to bed and I go up and I tuck them in. And they're going to get a hug, they're going to get a kiss, and I'm going to pray over them. But, but here's the deal. When I get home, I don't have to go searching for my kids. There's not a rule in our house, but when I get home, there's actually a race to dad. Usually the dog wins. <laughs> Usually the dog is the first one. But when I get home, there is a race to dad because they know that I am jealous to show them my love, and so they are zealous, not to worship me, but to experience it. When it's bedtime and a kid goes to bed, and it's been five minutes or so, and I haven't gone to tuck them in yet because I'm preoccupied with something, or I'm reading something, or who knows what I'm doing. When when I get preoccupied and I haven't gotten to it yet, about five minutes goes by, and you know what I hear? Dad! Dad! Why? Because they expect it. Because, because they want my jealous affection for them and they expect it. And so they, they have a zealous love in return. This is exactly how it works with God. God has a jealous love for you. And when you know his jealous love as seen in the gospel through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it does something in you. His spirit comes and lives in you, and you begin to, I'm not saying perfectly today, right now, you're going to be the best worship ever, but you begin to be on a trajectory where you want to, you want to respond with zealous worship. See, if you want to love God truly, if you want to love God truly, we see that you worship God as creator, not as creature. We see that you worship God as jealous, not as distant. But let's continue. And the third thing I want you to see is if you want to love God truly, this means you worship God as benevolent, not blind. 
Benevolent means that he's eager to provide and to bless you with what's good. He's eager to give you what's good. Blind in the context of he's blind to you and your, your rebelliousness and your sin. I want you to see that you need to worship God as benevolent, not blind. Go all the way back to verse 4. Let's read all of the second commandment together. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And now it describes it. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, and keep my commandments. You need to see God as benevolent here, not, not blind. You need to see this passage has a warning, a, a clear warning, but it also has something wonderful in it as well. Let's, let's look at both of them in turn. What, what is the warning? The warning here is that your iniquity will impair your family. It says, visiting the iniquity of fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Iniquity is a word for sin or transgression. It's a word for rebellion. It's, it's paired with that word hate me. So the one who has iniquity is the one who lives a life that shows God not that he loves him, but he hates him. Now, to say that your iniquity will impair your family, I actually I don't think I have to work very hard to convince you of this. Just think about a few just kind of obvious realities. The first reality is the reality of generational connectedness. You are connected to the generations that come before you, and you're connected in your family to the generations that come after you. And, and those generations, you will impact each other whether you like it or not. You might be a grandparent who is totally disengaged from the lives of your grandchildren. Guess what? That impacts them. That, that, that does something to them. You might be a grandparent who's totally like in their life and, and caring for them. That impacts them as well. Whether you're, you're engaged or not, the generational connectedness it impacts them another way to put this is the reality of natural consequences usually we teach this to our kids like hey if you do something stupid it's going to hurt natural consequences right like that, that's how it works but the same thing is true the natural consequences of your family life it will impact your children let's think about it if you if you don't live as a worshiper of god if you live in sin dads what happens if, if as the father of the home you're always angry you walk around the house with this, this undercurrent of anger and you're quick to lose your temper. And so everyone else, they walk around on eggshells just, just making sure they don't do the wrong. What happens, what's the trickle down to the lives of your kids? Well, usually they become angry as well. Some, sometimes they take on that exact quality. Sometimes they do the opposite. It's like the pendulum swings. Instead of being angry, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to not be anything that's toxic masculinity. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to be strong. I'm not going to be brave. I'm not going to be courageous. I'm never going to raise my voice. I'm never going to stand for what's right or what's good. I'm, I'm going to, in a sense, kind of do the opposite of that. But either way, that pendulum swings and it's, it's not good. And it trickles down into your life, your kid or mom's. What if you hover and smother 
What if you're that helicopter mom and and your kid can barely take two steps without you holding their hand? And we're not just talking about your young ones, but as they get older and they should have more independence, you continue to hold their hand and you continue to do everything for them and you don't allow them to stand on their own two feet and to spread, in a sense, spread their wings and, and be responsible for themselves. What happens is you end up having those kids who don't learn how to take care of themselves. So in their 20s or maybe even their 30s, they're not productive with their life and they're still dependent on you. I mean, for crying out loud, who else is going to do their laundry? What are you doing here? What you're really doing is not trusting God. The angry father is not trusting God to provide for his needs. The angry father is not going to God in repentance for his sin. The angry father is not going to his children or to his wife and saying, I sinned and I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Maybe the angry person in there is is the person who has yet to forgive and offer that forgiveness and say, I do forgive you and grant that forgiveness. Or for that mom, she's not trusting God that he really is the one who owns those children that they are his, and that he will take much better care of them than she can, and that sooner or later she has to actually trust them and trust God to lead them on the path they will go. This doesn't mean disengage completely, but it does mean to allow them to be on their own. And it's hard. And maybe you're sitting here and, and you say, you know, that's right where my family is. So maybe you're sitting here saying, I am that angry father or angry mother. I am that overbearing mother or that overbearing father. Maybe you're the, the absent father who's disengaged completely, doing your own thing, and you see the way it's trickling down into your lives. Here's the reality. This is not a guilt trip. This is actually the good news because the gospel of Jesus Christ can heal even what's wrong in your family right now. Through trusting Christ and His grace, through His death and resurrection, through repentance and faith, you can begin to stumble your way forward and find the healing that is found in Christ. Maybe you're sitting here and thinking, Mike, you just described my childhood, and I got these deep wounds and these deep scars, and they hold me back. The same is true for you. No matter how bad your childhood is, no matter how bad your parents did, guess what? God, right now, through His Son, Jesus, can put you on that path to true hope and true true healing. See, that's why if you look at this passage, you see that, yes, your iniquity will impair your family, but, but let's go a little bit further past the warning. Let's go a little bit further to the wonder of this passage. It says, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Let's just stop here for a minute, and let's just, let's just measure out two things. How many generations will be impacted by those who live in iniquity and hate God? Is this three or four? How many will be blessed by those who love God? Thousands. Before we go any further, I want you to see how eager God is to give his blessing and how eager God is to show his kindness, how desperately God wants to demonstrate his steadfast love to you in your life. Yes, this reality of generational connectedness can prove to be a curse for those who do iniquity, but more than that, this this beautiful wonder of thousands being blessed 
by God's steadfast love. What does this say? It says that your obedience, it will overflow to your family. Your obedience will overflow to your family. The, the same principle of generational connectedness applies. If you are a grandparent and you pray every day for your grandchildren, do not think for one second that that's time wasted. If you are a parent and you're not perfect, but you're trying so hard to teach your kids the way of the Lord. Maybe you're an aunt or an uncle and every interaction you have with your nieces or nephews, you're praying with them and you're teaching them God's word and you're encouraging them toward Christ. Guess what? All of those principles about the negatives of generational connectedness, they work in the exact same way in the positive. There are natural consequences, I should say supernatural consequences to your supernatural efforts to care for those in Christ. You know what this really means, though, is, is if you want a strong family, look, look at how it all connects. If you want a strong family, building strong families, it requires building true worshipers. Building strong families requires true worshipers. At Valley, we say that we're gospel-driven to build strong families, and we, we're serious about that. But guess what? You will not build a strong family until you're building true worshipers. Until you as a family, you're sending yourself on, on worshiping God. If your family is not making true worship of God a key priority, your family is missing something. It's missing something that's of vital importance. And let's just be honest, it is, it's really easy to leave out worship. I remember being a young man on a rec hockey team and had a great game one Saturday morning and, and our coach gathered us afterward. He said, hey guys, you're doing so well. I, I want to have another game tomorrow, uh, 7 a.m. Let's meet right back here. And I said, coach, I got church tomorrow. And he looked at me, he said, so? So? If we're honest, I think that's how some of us think about worship. It's an option. If we have nothing better on the calendar, we can make it happen. Maybe a couple times a month. Maybe four times a month on, on those really slow months when, you know, there's not a game on Sunday morning. Or when our kid and their, and their select team doesn't have to travel every other week out of town to go play. What do we end up doing? We end up making all these things much more important. But, but there it is. Do not make for yourself carved images. I, I don't think you're making your whatever hobby it is, into an image of God. But I think that sometimes we get our wires crossed. And what we end up doing is, is in the name of building a strong family, we sacrifice strong, true worship. And when we do that, we cut the legs right out from under ourselves. Because building strong families requires building true worship. You see, God wants to be loved. And I believe you're here or you're watching. You are here because you want to love God truly. I really don't think you'd be spending your time here this morning if that wasn't true. The question is, as you want to love God truly, are you loving him as creator or as creation? Are you loving God as jealous for you or distant from you? And or you, are you loving God as, as benevolent and generous in his blessing, or are you acting like he's blind to the ways you ignore him? And pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a, what a marvelous passage. Feels like we've only scratched the surface of what it means to truly worship you, and yet 
we have a few things clear in our mind. We know that you are creator. We know that you are jealous. And we know that you are benevolent and good. And so, Father, I pray that today you would help us to start right here, right now, worshiping you as such. Lord, help us not to think of you in any way that diminishes you as, as God of all things. Help us not to make you in our mind as something less than you are. Instead, let us remember that you, you made us. You made this world we live in, and even though you made everything and you can have anything, you, you jealously want us to draw near to you. You want us to experience your love so much that you showed it through the death of your son. And now you want us to know your goodness as we learn to love you and obey your commandments, we learn to experience your steadfast love, not just for ourselves, but for thousands and thousands. God, we would like so much to see that happen. And so we humbly ask for you to forgive us of our sin and the times we have not worshipped you correctly. We pray that you would powerfully lead us to, to grow as true worshipers. Help us to love you truly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you today. It's wonderful to worship God because he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And my prayer for you today is that you truly did. You caught a vision, a glimpse of how awesome God is and how it's worth it to worship him with everything you have. Now, if you have questions about what we've talked about, if you, have, if you would like prayer or anything like that, feel free to reach out to any of our leaders afterward. We'd love to connect with you and care for you in that way. Now, to end our service, we are going to, we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to sing one more song in just a moment. We are going to collect an offering for those who want to give in person. There, there are buckets in the front for those who give online. Thank you for that as well. Um, but I also do want to re announce the results of, of all of the voting from Yesterday, from this morning, from online, and from this service right here for Stephen Hall as an elder. And the results came back overwhelmingly uh, that Valley has affirmed Stephen as an, a new elder here at our church. So thank you guys. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, along with that, I think it'd be really cool. Stephen, why don't you come up? Will you pray for us as we conclude our service? And then uh, this Stephen will lead us in another worship song. And then we'll... I was ready. Oh, let's pray together. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, we just come to you now and lifting your name up in glory and honor. And, and Father, we can never truly give back the love that you have for us. It is simply a reflection. Father, we just ask that you encourage us and strengthen us to worship you as God of all, as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, don't allow for us. Encourage us. Give us the strength and endurance to set aside those things that have become idols in our life. Father, lead us down the path that you wish us to go. Father, we ask today that in what seems to be sometimes times of confusion and, and frustration and turmoil and and the things that are going on in this world that you remind us that our faith is not in this world. Our faith is in you and you alone. That it is your will be done in our lives. Father, we just thank you today. 
helping us, guiding us. Father, help us to stand for what we believe. Help us to make the right decision in our life, not necessarily what is easy, but what is true and what is right according to your will and your word. Father, we most of all today just thank you for your love, the love that you demonstrate so well and so much, most of all in in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. That through him and through his blood and sacrifice, we have hope for a new and bright tomorrow, a hope in everlasting life and eternal in your presence. Father, bring your kingdom here. Rest in us. Guide us and keep us and show us the way. In Jesus' name, amen.